Well, good morning again, Chili Bible. Good morning. You of you are awake out there. We made it. You believe it? We made it all the way through. The Lord carried us through 2020, and we uh, have now put that Anisphorabilis in the rear view, and we are now living in 2021 in a new year, and it is exciting, isn't it? It's exciting to me. It's a uh, it's much more hopeful than when will this year ever be over, right? Um, but our hope ultimately is not in a new year, is it? Our hope is not in the arrival of a vaccine. Our hope is not in the arrival of a new presidential administration or in uh, a change of the seasons or in a change of the weather from cold and snowy to warm and sunny. Uh, if you want that, you can just go to Florida. It's warm and sunny over 300 days a year there, right? Um, our hope is not in those things, though. Our hope ultimately is in Christ. And our hope is in not only His equipping and empowering work in every one of our lives who trust in Him today, but in the fact that Jesus is coming back. And Jesus will put all things right. Jesus will bring an end to all death, to all disease, to all, uh, all kinds of warfare and conflict between people. Jesus is coming. And His kingdom is coming. And we, you know, we've been walking through the book of Revelation for months now, and it is mostly grim. Amen? And you read through it, and from about chapter 4 all the way to chapter 19, it's grim. There's just judgment and death everywhere. And what we're going to see in uh, chapter 19 and chapter 20 uh, that we're going to look at today, uh, we're going to look at the end of chapter 19, the first little part of chapter 20. We're going to see uh, the return of Christ. We're going to see God's kingdom come. We're going to see that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to see that get answered today in the text that we're looking at. So uh, if you've got your Bible, I would like you to turn with me uh, over to uh, the book of Revelation once again. We're almost done with this book, if you can believe it. Uh, we're almost done. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 19, verse 11, and we're going to go all the way down through chapter 20 and verse 6 and see God's kingdom come uh, through, the, through the return of Christ. So uh, if you would, please stand with me. If you're uh, Certainly if you're here in person, but you can do this at home if you're joining us online as well. Stand in honor of God's word as I read beginning in chapter 19, verse 11 of Revelation. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage and the details of the return of Christ and victory over His enemies and of the establishment of His reign and of His kingdom, Father, we pray that we might not merely, as has been our encouragement throughout this text, throughout this book of Scripture, Father, help us not to merely look at these things as a way of satisfying our curiosity but as a way of changing our lives in the present moment. Because, Father, surely you do not speak of these things merely to encourage us, but also to exhort us to faithfulness and to living for Christ in the here and the now. And, Father, we pray that uh, we might have eyes to see that which you have to tell us here today, that we might glorify you by how we live in response to your word. And, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you look at verse 11 through verse 16, what you see is a description of Jesus, the returning, conquering, mighty king. He is not called Jesus by that name in this passage. Did you notice that? It's interesting. There's a lot of other names, glorious names, the Word of God, faithful and true, King of kings, Lord of lords, but he's never referred to as Jesus. I'm not not sure that when he returns, it will literally be on horseback 
although I'm open to that idea. I think it would be cool, frankly, if we all up there at the, at the, who attend the marriage supper of the Lamb also get to go to the heavenly stables and ride on our white stallions on the way back to the earth. That would be awesome. Uh, I don't know if that's actually, though, uh, describing a reality uh, in that sense or if it's describing a reality in a less literal but equally important sense. That See, in the ancient world, if you were a conquering king, if you had won already the victory, then when you returned home, what you rode was a white horse. And it was symbolic of the fact that you were returning in victory. And it's also important, um, not only for that reason, that Jesus is returning in victory, because, by the way, has Jesus already won? Yes, Jesus has already won. When did he win? At Calvary. All of his enemies were defeated there. This is simply the establishment of the victory Jesus has already won. The kingdom of God is among you. It has already happened, and yet it is not yet seen in all of its fullness. But the kingdom of God is here because Jesus is already reigning in one sense, even though his visible reign has not yet begun yet. But this is the passage that describes his establishment of his kingdom where you get to see it and what is real becomes visible um, in addition to that uh, he is called faithful and true and he is called the word of God because his word is true and he is the one who enacts God's Word who brings it to its fulfillment. Whatever God speaks, Jesus is the one who brings it into reality. And he is faithful and true because all of his promises are being kept. In fact, he is keeping them in this very moment. Not only in, in the return, but in our lives right now. Amen? God is keeping his promises. And he is faithful to them. He is true in what he promises and he is keeping them. Verse 12 says that the rider has eyes like fire because he is the holy and consuming judge of all of the wicked who have opposed him. Remember this too. I, I skipped over this earlier, but I want to draw your attention to it. Do you remember another white rider? A rider on a white horse at the beginning of the book? Remember him? You remember that at the center of this book is chapter 11, verse 15, where it says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom, solitary kingdom, of our Lord and of His Christ. Guess what? At the beginning of the book, you see rewards promised and a white rider go forth to take peace from the earth. Here at the end of the book, the white rider, a different one, comes to make peace on the earth and to distribute the rewards that he promised. You hear me? The one at the, is at the beginning is the Antichrist riding on a white horse to establish his kingdom. The one at the end 
is Jesus the Christ come to establish his kingdom and to overthrow the other one. See, that, that structure of, of that, what, uh, what the correct term for it is called a chiastic structure. You get half of an X, half of the Greek letter chi, with the center of the center hinge point of the of the book is chapter 11 verse 15 and it puts events therefore in parallel all the way through rider on a white horse different rider on a white horse at the end and a kingdom being established and a kingdom being overthrown so that another can be established at the end and verse 12 says that he, um, he bears many diadems. There are two kinds of crowns. There's two words for crown in the, um, in the New Testament. The one uh, is the Stephanos. It's the victor's crown that you get when you compete successfully in the Olympic Games. If you've seen those old sculptures, uh, you'll see a guy wearing an olive wreath, you know, a, an olive wreath crown, right? Uh, that's the Stephanos, that's the victor's crown, the one who competed successfully in the games. But the diadem is a different kind of crown. It's a ruler's crown. So why does Jesus bear many diadems? Because the kingdoms, plural, of this world have become the kingdom, singular, of our Lord and of his Christ. In other words, at the end, when Jesus returns, who gets all of the crowns? Jesus. They all become his crown. Because there is one king and one kingdom over the entire earth, ruled by Jesus Christ, the king. Uh, interestingly, John says that that the true name of this figure on the white horse, Jesus, his true name is known only to himself. He doesn't share that name with anybody. Some people still ask. They're like, well, wonder what his name is. The text says his name is known to him and him alone. Right? So it does, it's useless to speculate. But it does remind us of the book of Judges, uh, chapter uh, 13 verse 18 where the angel of the Lord speaks as a sacrifice is being offered to him and he says and and the person offering the sacrifice says uh, what's your name and the angel of the Lord speaks back and says why do you ask my name it is beyond understanding and this this reminds me of that that his name is beyond understanding. He wears a robe, verse 13 says, dipped in blood. Why is that? It's the blood of his enemies. Remember the end of uh, chapter 14 where it says that he treads the winepress of the wrath of God. That's, that comes up again in this text. His robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies because he is victorious over them and it's their blood on his robes. The beast, the false prophet, the devil, and their armies think that there's going to be this great and glorious battle. And so they've massed for the battle. But the text makes clear there won't be 
a battle. Why not? Because out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Will there literally be a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth? I don't think so. I think that what, it, what that is, is that it is symbolic of the power and the conquering force of God's own word. That Jesus has merely to speak, in other words, and the battle is won. He who said, by the way, let there be and there was, if you read Genesis, remember that creation account? And God said, let there be light. You know what you never see described being created? Anything except human beings. God forms us. Everything else, he just speaks into existence. You realize that, that 25,000 of our earth fit inside the sun? And our sun is not even a big star? And that there are billions of those in billions of galaxies across the universe. And God says that he speaks and that stuff appears. What kind of God is that? That is a God whose ultimate power is expressed in his word. The text makes it clear that there's not much of a battle. In fact, what happens is, um, verse 14, that there are armies riding with him, but guess how they're dressed? They're dressed in white linen. Is that what you put on for a battle, by the way? No. It's what you put on if you are among those uh, who are part of the second coming with Christ, if you are among those uh, who are who have received that white linen as a reward, who are part of the people of God, so who are the armies of heaven that return with Christ? Look around the room, y'all. You're part of this. If you're a believer in Christ, you are part of the armies of heaven. You are among those who are dressed in white linen. Those who, faith, who through faith in Christ live righteous lives are dressed in a way that reveals their holiness before God. And uh, that is the cons that's consistently mentioned in Revelation as one of the rewards of those who follow Christ. Remember? That you'll be dressed in white linen. You know what else? When else you wear a white linen garment? In Scripture, it's on your wedding day. This is when, if you will, we're on our honeymoon with Jesus. Where we get to reign with Him as part of the bride. And we are coming back for the beginning of our life with Him, our wedding having happened in heaven, we are returning with our groom. And this isn't battle array, as I mentioned, because there isn't one. Verse 15 speaks of a sharp sword coming out of His mouth. And uh, there's again, there's not much of a battle, because what happens? Well, verses 17 uh, and following tell us. Uh, first, what happens... Uh, 
in, in that Jesus conquers all of his enemies, what happens first is that there is an angel that comes and makes an announcement to all of the birds that circle overhead. Now, think about that. You, you live near the Illinois River, if you're part of the church here. Have you seen the birds that, that fly overhead along the river? What kind of birds are those? Vultures. Eagles. Carrion birds are the ones that fly overhead, right? The ones that fly through the air, that's, not, that's a different kind of bird. That's a songbird, right? That's a seed eater. That's one you can, you can see at your bird feeder. But the ones that fly overhead, those are the ones looking for something dead. And this angel, by the way, consider how powerful this angel is. The text says that the, this angel stands in the sun. Now, you and I can't look at the sun without having our retinas burned out, right? This creature, this angel is so powerful, he is able to stand essentially in the center of a nuclear reactor, a giant one. What kind of being is that powerful? I don't know. But I'll tell you this, you can't take him in arm wrestling. Not even one out of three. And, and now let me ask you a, a bigger question. What kind of a being made that one? That is the God that you serve. The birds gather, and as they gather, the, the event is called the Great Supper of God. Now, we just saw last week, Pastor Josh did a great job explaining to us what the marriage supper of the Lamb is, and it's great. And by the way, I intentionally delayed communion because Jesus said that he would not eat and drink again of the fruit of the vine or uh, any of that until he ate and drank again with us in the kingdom. And so we're going to eat we're going to eat and drink at the end in anticipation of the fact that Christ's kingdom is coming. But if you're part of the marriage supper of the lamb, you get to eat with Jesus. You get to enjoy the celebration of being with Christ and the beginning of your life with him. If you are at the great supper of God, on the other hand, it is because you are the menu. Hear me when I say that. They call all the birds to eat you because you die at the great supper of God. There is judgment right here. Uh, the, the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet are cast forever into the lake of fire, which is the ultimate destiny of all wicked people, but will not contain them until after the great white throne judgment. Uh, Pastor Scott's going to lead us into that next week and show us that text of final judgment at the end of all things before the eternal state comes. Uh, we get the great white throne judgment. 
Uh, the rest of the dead remain dead until that day comes. And in addition to that, the text says that Satan is bound with a great chain by a mighty heavenly angel and cast into the bottomless pit and sealed for a thousand years. Because during Christ's kingdom, Satan will not be allowed to go forth and deceive people and lead them into sin. Uh, I happen to think that when it mentions Satan, that it includes, because he is the leader of all the demonic realm, that it includes the rest of the demonic realm along with him, that they will all equally be banished from the earth and all confined uh, again in the bottomless pit. Um, but what I and what I think is happening again, Revelation is the fulfillment of a lot of things, and it's the fulfillment of God's plan. And as you read your Bible, what you'll see along the way is that there are different ways that God has revealed Himself and worked with people down through history. So in the beginning, God created everything uh, beautiful and good and perfect, and He put perfect people in perfect environment and perfect relationship with himself and with one another in a perfect garden, remember? And then Satan came in and deceived the people and led them astray, led them into sin. And their sin plunged the whole world into chaos and corruption. But God established the principle that he would send a Messiah and that sin would be covered over with sacrifice in that event. And he entrusted people with the reality of sacrifice, with the promise of Messiah, and, uh, and gave them a conscience as a way of pointing out to them what sin was. And so we start with creation, then in the corruption we go to operating by our conscience. That didn't work out well, ended with a flood. As people didn't obey their conscience, they didn't sacrifice to God, and they walked away from Him. So God said, okay, well, we'll save by grace Noah and his family, and we'll start over. We'll try a different way. And as soon as Noah and his family got off the boat, sin corrupted the world again. And as they began to reproduce and multiply and fill the earth, they all gathered together in one place uh, with one purpose, to create worship of their own. Idolatrous worship rather than the worship of the true God. And that ended at the Tower of Babel. And a nation spread out across the globe. And God said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll create my own nation and my own people. And I will give them my word. I will give it to them in written form. I'll give them all kinds of sacrifices that they can participate in so they understand the reality of the need for sacrifice to deal with sin because Messiah has not yet come, but He's still promised. And He's going to come through this race of people. And we all know how that ended. That the people who were called to be God's people were corrupted by sin, were sent into exile, and the place of sacrifice was destroyed. And then it was rebuilt. But as it was rebuilt, people got confused as to what was the purpose of the law and that it was not to make you righteous and put you in relationship with God. It was 
how you would live because you were in relationship with God. Because sacrifice covered over your sin, you now live this way. And so, eventually, um, as that failed, Messiah came. And as Messiah came, uh, he was warmly received, wasn't he? No. In fact, he was rejected and hated and despised and put to death. But in his death, God dealt with sin. And in his resurrection, God gave new life. And everybody around the world rejoiced and turned away from sin and repentance and embraced him, right? No. But God took Jesus to heaven where he reigns and he sent forth the Spirit so that the law would be written not on tablets of stone but on human hearts that they might live in a transformed way. And surely that would be enough, right? To bring about transformation of the entire world. No. There are some who follow Christ. We are among them. But the world will end in rejection of Christ and in the judgment of the tribulation through which God will restore and save the nation of Israel and millions of other peoples, but through which men will get to do that which men are prone to do, which is to destroy themselves with sin and rebellion. And God will give them everything they want, all of the rebellion and sin they can handle, and the judgment to go with it. And at the end of all that, Jesus himself will return in a visible way and establish his kingdom and reign for, for a thousand years on the earth during which Satan will be bound. Because people might say, well, you know, if only Jesus would actually show up in a way that we can see Him and reign in righteousness, then we would know how to really live. And if only Satan and the demonic realm were not here to lead us astray, well, then we would really all obey. As we'll see next week, as soon as there is an opportunity to rebel against God, it is seized by a great majority of humanity at the end of the millennial kingdom after a thousand years of Christ's reign on earth. And all this happens both so that God can be glorified in the salvation of those who turn to him in faith and so that God can be glorified in his justice in judging those who rejected him because God has done everything possible from perfect environment to perfect kingdom to bring people to faith in His Son. And so God will be fully just in His judgment at the great white throne. Because every opportunity, every kind of way of coming to God has been tried and done. And yet people who are going to judgment will have done so in full knowledge and awareness of all of these things. But before that comes reigning with the, all of the saints. And that's what you see in verses 
4 through 6 of chapter 20. Uh, this is the reign of Christ with the saints for a thousand years. And that requires, I think, some explanation. Who, who are the saints? Who is there? Um, I think this. I think that those who believe in Christ right now will be caught up to heaven with Christ at the rapture of the church, which happens prior to the tribulation. That's why the church is not mentioned uh, as being present on the earth after chapter 4 of Revelation. We show up again in chapter 20 or actually at the end of chapter 19, as, as those who return with Christ. Um, where are we? We're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're with Christ in heaven. Uh, we will be among those who eat the marriage supper during that seven-year period in parallel to the seven days of a traditional Jewish wedding. And then when Christ returns, we will reign over the earth with him. Now, let me give you six questions and six answers about the millennial kingdom. Who else will we reign with? Well, I think that verse 4 makes it clear that who else we reign with is everyone who has been martyred during the tribulation period. It says they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That all of the people who were part of the people of God who were put to death during the tribulation because of the, the, the word of their testimony uh, that Jesus is the Christ and they would not bow the knee to the Antichrist and were therefore put to death. At this point, come to life again. And they receive their resurrection bodies and they reign alongside the people of God during the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. Uh, that leads to another question. Whom do we rule over? The answer is, is that uh, all who are the people of God and their descendants who, who were not killed uh, by the Antichrist during the tribulation, uh, along with uh, all of the people who were unbelievers and who were not present at the Battle of Armageddon. There will, there will be people who survive the tribulation who are not believers, who nevertheless are not present with the Antichrist uh, at, at the Battle of Armageddon, the so-called battle. Not much of a battle. Um, God speaks and everybody who's his enemy dies. There's not really much of a war, right? Um, but everyone who is an unbeliever and their descendants uh, are also, they go into the millennial kingdom, and they are ruled by those who follow Christ. Uh, what will life be like then? Well, you can get a, a strong hint of what life will be like by reading the last 20 chapters, or actually about the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah uh, from chapter 40 uh, through chapter 66. Uh, read those chapters. You get a strong hint of what life will be like in the millennial kingdom. Uh, chapter 55 is especially good on the book of Isaiah. It speaks of the people of God living life like trees. One of my favorite places in the world is Great Oaks Camps. 
and it's called great oaks because there are a number of big oak trees. There are some that it would take me and my sons stretching our arms out like this to get our arms around the tree because that tree is 200 years old and it's massive, right? That the people of God will have mortal lives during that time. Those who went into the millennial kingdom will live long lives. I think it's very possible that if you are a believer entering into the millennial kingdom and if you become a believer during it, that you will live all the way to the end of it. As at the beginning of the book, remember that Adam lived these, these and his descendants lived these very long lives. So it's possible that you'll outlive Methuselah and live all the way to the end of God's kingdom. Uh, the, the text, uh, chapter 55, speaks of the wicked. Um, Isaiah 55 speaks of the wicked dying at a hundred of the wolf and the lamb grazing on grass, of the lion eating hay like an ox, uh, and that nothing that hurts or destroys anything is permitted in all God's kingdom. The destruction that God brought through the tribulation will be wiped away and become a memory. The earth and the heavens will be renewed. All of the environmental uh, effects of sin and of the tribulation judgments will be wiped away and reversed. My own conviction is that all of the species of animals and plants that have ever existed on earth will be restored. And everything will be put back uh, to the way that God had designed it to be. If you remember, there's an earthquake at the end of the tribulation as part of God's final judgment. All of the mountains and all of the islands disappear and the whole earth becomes, uh, becomes a plain. And all covering that is, I think, lush vegetation. And that leads to another question. Why? Why the millennial kingdom? Why doesn't God just return, judge everybody who's wicked, have the great white throne judgment, and carry everybody else into the eternal state? Why the millennial kingdom? What's, what's the point of it? It is because Jesus is as good as his name. Remember what his name is? Faithful and true. And God made a promise to David that a king from his line would sit in Jerusalem on this earth and reign for generations. He promised that Israel would be renewed and restored, and that there would be a renewal of their kingdom and their lands, and that Jerusalem would be one day the center of worldwide worship of Yahweh, and that the nations would stream from around the world to that city to worship their king. That hadn't happened yet. The millennial kingdom is when that happens. And these promises are still valid. And it's important to God that they be kept because He is faithful and true to His Word.
Question number five is, is one on all of our minds. When? Well, after the tribulation. Some of you are like, yeah, you weasel. Let me tell you a little more. When? Is it soon? The answer is, I don't know. And neither do you. And neither does anyone else. How do I know no one knows? Because Jesus said it was not our business. Acts chapter 1, the disciples all asked Jesus, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, Jesus, when's the kingdom coming? When is this? This event we're just reading about here this morning. When is that? And what's what Jesus said? It's not for you to know, which is a very... Um, maybe longish way of saying, none of your business. It's not your job to know that. And if, by the way, if it wasn't their job to know, they were the apostles, amen? It's not our job to know either. Our job is to be faithful in the meantime. And to remember what, uh, what Peter said to us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some count slowness, but He is, what? Patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So in other words, why is God waiting to bring about the tribulation and then the kingdom? Because God is still busy saving a people for Himself. God is still bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ and bringing them into His people, making them among those who will eat the marriage supper of the Lamb with His Son at the establishment of His rule. And and when that task is done, then the tribulation will come. All God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled. Uh, and the kingdom will be established. God is not slow. He's waiting because He's saving. When is all that going to be done? Whenever He determines. And that leads me to one last question that I want to answer by way of drawing this message to a close and drawing out its application for us. And that's this question. What will you and I be doing then? A lot of people wonder. Okay, so there's a kingdom. We're going to be in it. It's going to be awesome. What's our job? What do we do? You know, surely it's something more productive than sit and watch Netflix, right? Um, what, what is it that we do during this time? And the answer is, it depends. And again, lest you think I'm being a weasel and trying to avoid answering, let me give you Jesus' answer. This is from Luke chapter 19. And Jesus, as always, tells a story. So a certain nobleman went away to receive a kingdom and after that to return and establish his rule. And before he left, he called together his servants and he entrusted each of them with a large sum of money and told them to invest it until his return. And so his servants were sent forth to invest the master's resources. 
And after his departure, there was a group of citizens who decided they would not have this man be king over them. But he was made king anyway. And upon his return, he called together his servants to ask for an accounting of their investments. And the first of the servants was very faithful and came before the king and said, Sir, I've taken the, the sum of money you gave me and I've multiplied it tenfold. And the master returned all of the resources to him and said, Therefore, take charge of ten cities. And another servant came and he said, Master, I've multiplied your resources fivefold. The master returned all of the resources to him as well and said, take charge of five cities. Another servant came and said, Master, I know you're a demanding boss and I didn't want to lose any money. And so I didn't do anything with it. I hid it. And here it is. And the master was displeased and he seized his resources and gave it to the one who already had tenfold and rebuked his unfaithful servant for his unfaithfulness. And then he said, and as for those who would not have me be king over them, bring them and kill them in front of me. Now, this story illustrates some important truths that are tied directly to this text. Who is the nobleman who went away to become king? Jesus. Who are those whom the king kills upon his return because they would not have him as their king? They are those who reject Jesus. Who are the servants? They are you and me who follow the king. And they receive a reward according to what? According to their faithfulness until the master returns. Until the kingdom comes. So, that leads us to one last very important question. Question number seven. Which one will you be? If you are among the people who have decided heretofore that you will not have Jesus as king over your life, understand this very, very clearly. He is going to be king anyway. And and since that is true, the very best thing you can do is to make peace with Him right now. It is to yield your heart and life to Him and say to Him, I am a sinner and even though I have rejected you up to now, I am turning to you now. I have nothing to offer but my sin and my need of a Savior. And I ask that you would forgive my sin and welcome me 
as your child instead of your enemy. It's all it takes to change allegiance from the enemies of God to the people of God. That can happen in a second. So I invite you to do that if you've never done that before today. On the other hand, if you are already among the people of God, then you are one of the servants in the story. And the challenge for us is to be faithful with what the Master has given. We don't all have the same proportion of resources. We don't all have the same gifting and talents which distributed to us, the text says, according to our abilities, according to the things which the Master has given us. But we are called to be faithful with what we are given. Amen? And to not hoard it to ourselves, just waiting until He comes back to give it back to Him unused. We are rather to spend it wildly, making a profit for the kingdom of God. Investing our lives, pouring out everything Jesus has given us for the advance of his cause, his kingdom, his gospel, his people. Amen? Which one will you be? I know what I want to do. I want to be those who receive, among those who receive a lavish reward. Who reign over a great kingdom under the true King, Jesus Christ. And we have a new year and a new challenge to be faithful. I believe that God is going to renew and rebuild and restore many things in our in our church and in our community and in our country and in our world in this year. But even if He does not, our challenge is still to be faithful. To still to make disciples. Still to share the gospel. Still to live out what it means to follow Christ with all those we know. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. And then let's take communion together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are faithful and true. That You keep all Your promises in Your Word and that there is a day coming when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Father, until that day comes, may You help us to be faithful and follow You all the way to the end. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.